Hey guys, uh, yeah, thank you for uh, both of you that clapped for me. That was awesome. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, right. Um, hey, uh, just, some, uh, just some news as we uh, lead into this. Um, at the starting point desk on your way out today, you'll, uh, you, you'll find one of these annual reports. And this is, it's so good. It's amazing stories that are told in here. Uh, do yourself a favor as you head on out, stop by the starting point desk, uh, ask for one of these reports. We'd love to get one into your hands. Uh, there's a lot of numbers in here. There's a lot of statistics and things like that. We do that because every number has a name. Every statistic is a story, a story that God is telling of life change in and through the community here. Uh, so grab one of these little reports and, and read the stories, uh, see the pictures, flip through the pages with a sense of gratitude in your heart about what Jesus is doing in and through this community. And may he receive all the glory, honor, and praise as we close out this year together. I'm also going to note that uh, as we end the year together, I know that generosity is on a lot of our hearts. And uh, there is a direct appeal in the end here of saying, hey, listen, uh, we would love for you to consider partnering financially with Encounter as we close out the year together. You can read some of these stories, see what God is up to. Think back about how God has been so faithful to you in your journey this past year. And what does that mean in your financial commitments moving forward? Uh, we're in a series right now that we kicked off last week called Broken Saviors. And what we're doing is through the month of December leading up to Christmas, we thought, hey, what book of the Bible just kind of screams Christmas? And we came up with Judges. And you're like, awesome. That feels festive and puts me right into the Christmas spirit, right? Uh, we said last week that reading Judges for Advent is a lot like watching a diehard movie as a Christmas movie, right? It's just, a lot of it doesn't totally make sense, but if you think about it long enough, it does kind of work, right? Especially with Judges, because there's, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of like gore and blood, and, and just really, really over the top. I mean, I would argue that Die Hard has nothing on Judges and as, it, as it relates to just raw violence, but you can kind of see in between the pages and maybe in the background of all of these stories that God is actually setting the table, that God is actually decorating for Christmas. And he, he's pointing, if not anything else, he's pointing of just how each one of these judges, each one of these leaders is an, in and of themselves is a savior, but screams the need of a better savior, a truer savior, a savior who's going to save for longer. And we can see in this story this, this pattern just kind of develop and as people just get stuck into it. And that's really where we find our entry, entry point into the, into the story this morning. Uh, the, the pattern that they get stuck into is disobedience, disaster, and deliverance. And it's just over and over and again. It's, it's, it's like this, this circle of repetition. Uh, disobedience, turning their, their hearts away from God. Disaster as they find themselves uh, completely taken over by their enemies, by their neighbors. And then they cry out, God, please help us. And God does. He provides a savior. He provides a deliverer. And they're okay, like for a little while. And I just want to like identify together how familiar that should sound to so many of us. And I don't want a show of hands here, but there's like a part of me that goes, yes, because every single one of us, we have our own unique pattern and maybe the names and maybe the places are unique for each one of us, but we have this pattern that we get stuck on and maybe we eat too much, we drink too much, we date too much, we spend too much and, and we find ourselves in this moment of just disaster. We're up in our eyeballs in debt or we broke off another relationship that we should have kept or stayed in a relationship we should have broken off with and we're at the party and we're overheads and the cops are on their way, whatever the thing is. 
And we're like going, how did I get here again? Anytime you find yourself going, I really truly thought the last time was going to be the last time. And it wasn't. Friends, the book of Judges for each one of us, this this disaster circle, uh, disobedience, disaster, deliverance, over and over. But we see in Judges, it's not like a flat circle, it's a spiral. As the disaster gets worse and the deliverance time period gets shorter and shorter and shorter until it gets to the end of the book of Judges and you're like, they are in so over their head, there's absolutely nothing that they can do and they don't even know who to cry out to anymore and that's where we enter Christmas. Spoiler alert. Where the, the, the silence of 600 years is broken with the cry of a baby at Christmas time. That's why we read Judges in preparation for Christmas. Um, we, we go to this, this disaster spiral. There's this repetition. I really thought last time was going to be the last time. And we see it in the, in the people in Judges, and we also see it today. And I just want to make that connection for us to say, like, I know the symptoms and maybe the names and the places of these things might be different, but the, the underlying disease of the people then and the people in us today, the underlying disease continues to be the exact same. And, and I think it, we've actually found a way to embed this right into the American, the American dream. You, you might call this like the, the dark underbelly of the American dream. The dark underbelly of the American dream goes something like this. I want independence. I want to be free. I want complete and utter autonomy. I want to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And you can see there's a little asterisk on the screen. And you probably know what the little asterisk means. I want to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And the asterisk means as long as no one gets hurt. I should be able to do it, right? I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, asterisk, as long as no one gets hurt. Well, like, here's the thing for us today, and here's the thing with the judges who said the same thing. I don't want a king. I, want, I don't want somebody over me. I want to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as nobody gets hurt. But we see it play out over the generations in judges. Somebody always gets hurt. <laughs> When we do that, what I want, when I want, with whom I want, someone always pays the price. And like I would say, oftentimes, it's you. You're the one who gets hurt. I'm the one who gets hurt when I do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. Maybe it's the person next to you who gets hurt. Maybe it's someone who's going to come after you who actually pays the price and gets hurt. I know your stories because I've, I've heard many of them and I know a lot of you guys are in counseling right now and you're unpacking like whatever it is that your parents messed you up in the particular way that you're messed up right now and you're going, it was them. They did what they want, when they want, with whom they want and now I am the way that I am. I'm the one who got hurt and the cycle just repeats itself. And like I said, maybe it's eat too much, drink too much, spend too much, date too much, whatever it is that you're like, man, how did I get here again? How do I get off this ride? We're going to ask the question this morning. How do I break this cycle? For you and for me, there's not just judges as a book, but there's the wild story of Deborah 
in the beginning of the book of Judges for us this morning. So if you'd like to follow along, um, you are welcome to. I, that, that's fantastic. Uh, words are also going to be on the screen behind me. And I just, I want to warn you, remember, we're doing like Die Hard as a Christmas movie this morning. And so this is, this is a weird story with some really bizarre turns. But the story, the story, uh, not just for like Bible fans, uh, but for even scholars outside of the Bible, this thing is expertly written. And so there's so much like subtle nuances. And I'm going to give you about half of what I picked up earlier this week, but it is just, it's fantastic. So we're going to dig into it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some notes here, because I, I want to make sure that we can, uh, we can catch, catch all of it we can. How do we, how do we break this cycle? What I want, when I want, with whom I want. Uh, disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Okay, we'll pick it up in Judges chapter 4 and verse 1, and we, we already see like the beginning, you know, of, the, of that cycle, that, that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Right? At the very end, we're going to have them crying out for help. And there's obviously a connection between these two things. But this is, this is the story, right? Where, where they're like, oh, come on. I'm, I'm in it again. Okay? Um, all right. So here we go. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, remember? Left hand with the king. Right? We heard about that one last week. You can read about it online. Watch it online. Verse 2. So the Lord sold them into the hands. There's going to be so many names. Come names and places and generals and kings. And I just, uh, I want you to remember a, a few of them because it's just going to be helpful, okay? Uh, he sold them into the hands of Jabin. That's one of them I want us to remember. Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And then Sisera, the commander of his army. Okay, so Jabin is the, is the enemy king in the, one of the Canaan, Canaan cities, tribes. Jabin is the king. Sisera is the commander, like the general, the, the soldier. So Sisera is the commander of this army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim, uh, because he had, and we have 900 chariots fitted with iron, we're going to come back to that, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, and they cried out to the Lord for help. Um, some names and places, we're going to get really deep into the, into the weeds in just a moment here, but what I want to do is like back us out and just see one really, really big picture thing, and then one really really small picture, like, like fine-tuning kind of thing. Big picture thing, story of God. What we have in the book of Judges is kind of the connecting point between uh, Joshua, when he goes into Canaan, which is like the promised land, and he's like kicking tail, right, and taking over all these cities and like cleaning up, and it's like, this is the land God promised to us. I'm going to come in here. We're going to take it over, and we're going to settle here, okay? And then David is, and the kings like Saul, David, Solomon are going to come a little bit afterwards. Judges is this like in-between time of like 300-ish years when it's just kind of messy. It's just kind of like sloppy. Like, like they're, they're in the land, but, but it's not really like theirs because the Canaanites, you know, and these other tribes like Jabin and Sisera, those guys are also there. And we're not really to the, to the kings where we know like who's in charge because God is supposed to be king and he has set up all of these laws and we're supposed to love each other and serve God and everything is supposed to work and it's just not, as we can see over and over and over again. So big picture, stepping back, a little bit of Old Testament theology Every time you pick up a Bible and you start to read in the Old Testament about the land of Israel, specifically here before Israel, it's the land of Canaan. I want you to know it's not about the land. It never really was about the land. It was about what God was doing through the people. So whenever you see the land of Canaan in the Old Testament, what I would love for you to do is to take a step back and go, he's talking about me. He's talking about my life. The land of Canaan. And so they're supposed to completely devote the land of Canaan to the Lord their, Lord their God, their Savior. It's just like we're supposed to commit our whole lives over, over to the Lord our God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The land is our life. And now there's enemies in the land, like Jabin, like Sisera, more on those guys in just a minute. There's enemies in this land. That's the sin in our life that God is saying, listen, I want you to root that garbage out of here once and for all and commit yourselves fully to me. It's a little Bible fun fact as we start to narrow the picture from like big into, into a little bit more, a little bit more honed at this smaller picture is it in the previous book in Joshua, when he goes in the land, and he's kicking tail, and he's taking over these cities, and like incredible things are happening. But we're also told that he met Jabin, Joshua, this commander, warrior king of Israel, he, uh, warrior leader of Israel. He met Jabin before, and he didn't drive him out of the land. He didn't do the hard thing. In Joshua, the previous book, Joshua chapter 11, uh, Jabin is allowed to stay in the land. I think Joshua is a lot like us. And he's like, I don't want to do the hard thing and address the elephant in the room or address the difficult word. I think I'm just going to kind of let him over there. And I'm just going to assume that he's going to stay over there. And that's just not how the world works. That's not how sin works. It's not how taxes work. (laughs) I, I was reading earlier in preparation for today and somebody's like, that's a lot like getting a letter from the IRS about some bad news because they don't ever send you good news. It's not like, hey, you paid your taxes, way to go. They don't tell you that. It's, it's, the, it's the weirdest system, right? They've got a number in mind. You have to figure out what that number is and they'll let you know if you don't do that number, you know? And they'll, they'll send you a letter and, and you could just ignore that. Joshua Jabin style, set that off to the side and be like, I mean, that's probably bad news. I'll deal with that later. And then later it happens, right? Like later comes knocking on your door. Later comes with more notices. Later comes with more fines. Later comes with more trouble. It's a lot like the Jabin story that Joshua should have addressed this thing and nipped it in the bud. And now later is coming knocking on the door and later has an army behind him of 900 chariots. And I just, I just point this out. Because I want you to know that sin, we say around here, sin has a gotcha. God doesn't want it to get you. It's nip this thing in the bud now. I had a mentor that addressed some things in my life, in my heart, particularly uh, around, uh, around leadership. And he saw this like kind of falling out with me and some, some of the other people. And, he's, and he took me out to lunch. And he so, this is like almost 10 years ago now. And he so graciously gave me just fantastic advice. He goes, uh, he goes I, can, I can kind of see this, this like falling out. And there's like this pit. That starts like this, this dark spot, right? And, and he's like, and it's happening with some people. And so I can see you kind of avoid, avoid that thing. Or, or maybe for you, it's a person. You can, I can see you like avoid that person. And you don't want to like address it. You don't want to have the hard conversation. And you just sort of assume that that pit or that hole is just going to get smaller and eventually go away. And he goes, and I just want to let you know that's in my experience, being older, wiser than I was at that time, he goes, I just want to let you know that's not typically what happens. That pit or that hole doesn't tend to shrink and go away. I've just, as I've noticed, they always just seem to grow and get bigger and bigger. And they also sometimes multiply in other areas. And you will spend your life, and for me in this context, you can spend your ministry trying to avoid talking about the hard things. And she goes, for whatever it's worth, my advice to you the best time to address this thing was when it happened. The second best time to address it is right now. And some of you guys, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your marriage. 
And you're like going, man, there's a hard thing that I don't know how to talk about. And so I'll just, I'll avoid it. Maybe in years one through seven, some things have happened. And seven and eight, you're like, I should talk about those things. I'm going to avoid them. And just expect that this hole starts to shrink. And I'm telling you, it's like a black hole and it sucks everything in the orbit around into it. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you don't just have the thing. You also have the thing compounded by the awkwardness of not talking about it for 10, 20, sometimes 30 years. And it's now a giant black hole in your marriage. And I'm just pleading with you, don't be that guy. I feel like I was rescued 10 years ago. Don't be that guy. You don't have to. The best thing to do is to nip that thing in the butt in Joshua chapter 11 when it happened. The second best time, as we'll see right now, is this exact moment. Okay, big picture, small picture. Uh, just a note on those, uh, those chariots, because they're going to be important in a little bit. Uh, we've got 900 chariots. I said, uh, so the Bible is the Bible. It's like, it's awesome. Inspired by God. And I don't want to take away from that, devalue that at all. But we also see stories in the Bible uh, corroborated with outside of the Bible stories. And, and we see that in the history stuff kind of a lot. And so there's a historian named Josephus who did a bunch of work just like in this, in this region, in this part of the world. And he, just, he documented all kinds of things. It's not Bible, but it's like other history. And Josephus tells us, we read about 900 chariots that he's got going on right there. Josephus is going, he didn't have 900. He had 3,000 chariots fitted with iron. He had 50,000 troops at his disposal. I mean, this guy was it. He controlled the area, and no one messed with him. The Israelites just saw these 900 because that's just what was assigned to keep them in line. But honestly, one may have been enough. Uh, commentators write about uh, the iron chariots is like, uh, like having a tank when your opponents were fighting with swords and clubs. I mean, they just steamrolled right through. This isn't a fair fight, whatever's coming next. And, and the author here of Judges just wants us to know it's not a fair fight. So the people know that. And so they do the thing that instinctively comes natural to them is they cry out to the Lord for help. We tried to emulate our neighbors. We tried to be just like them. And now they just took us over. God, 900 chariots, you're the only one that can help us. So God does what God does. Deliverance. Uh, Deborah. Jabin is the enemy king. Sisera is the enemy general. Deborah is the Israelite uh, leader. She's called a, a prophet here. Uh, really, it's a, like a, a, she's going to be a judge. It really means more like leader. Let's keep reading. Uh, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at that time. So don't think of her like a judge, like Judge Judy, you know, ruling over Israel with a little bit of sass. Uh, not the case. She's more like a mayor uh, of the region. I mean, she's settling disputes, yeah, but she's also saying like the road has to go there, you know, and that the drainage is going to be, is going to come off. The, she's a really wise person and she's respected because of that. Okay, she held court under the palm of Deborah. She's got her own palm tree. How cool is that? Unrelated. Um, this all takes place between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes settled or decided. Uh, she's, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kedesh and Naphtali, uh, and said to him, now Barak uh, or Barak is, is going to be important. Uh, 
Jabin is the enemy king. Sisera is the enemy general. Uh, Deborah is the Israelite leader. Uh, Barak is going to be the Israelite commander. So she says to this commander, great news. As a prophet, God told me to tell you, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. Now, the reason why they have to go up to a mountain is because of the 900 chariots fitted with iron, right? Like, there's no way we could beat them in, like, a head-to-head battle. Like, that's absolutely just not going to happen. So what we're going to do, here's the plan, Deborah says. Debbie says, we're going to go up to this mountain, and we're going to, like, hide out there. They're going to be down in the valley, in this, like, river valley down below, and we're going to wait for the right time to attack. And, and Barak's like, I'm cool with the running and hiding part, I have some questions about the attack part down in the valley. Like, can we just stay up in the mountains? She's like, you can't live your life running away in the mountains. We got to meet them head on. So this is what happens. So she goes, uh, she said to him, I, I, I will lead Sisera, enemy general, enemy commander, uh, the commander of Jabin's army, these are the guys again, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. We don't get a lot more than that. We just have like, okay, so we're going to win somehow? And I, just, I want you to talk it away in the back of your minds that this is all happening. The Kishon River, it's a, it's a river valley. So the Israelite people, their army is like hiding in the mountains and the iron chariots, the tanks are hanging up by this river valley below. And then Barak said to her, okay, all right. If you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, then I won't go. And there's a a part of me, right, that's like, ladies and gentlemen, your Israelite commander-in-chief, you know. Uh, Debbie, if you go, then I'll go. But otherwise, no, I think I'm going to go ahead and, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and stay home then. You can, you just hear the confidence just flowing, just coursing through his veins, doesn't it? A couple things on that, because I do think, I do think this is kind of important. And, uh, as I was digging into this thing earlier this week, I cannot tell you how many commentators and how many scholars uh, take a passage like that and they, and they point out, a little bit like I just did, point out the, the weakness in barracks, in the, in the commander, in the, in the army's voice. And just say like, you know what? This is what happens when good leaders don't leave. Or this is what happens, and, and a lot of pastors then kind of go on the, on, the, on the role of like, this is what happens with a, the demise of the like masculinity in the West. There's like a Gillette commercial that's like brought in here from years back. This is like this whole thing. And I just, I want to challenge that a little bit. And, uh, and I want to point a couple things out because I, I don't think that this is necessarily, that the right reading of this is necessarily a weak move on Barak's part. That he's just, he's scared, and so he wants, he wants Deborah to go with him. He gets a little bit more nuanced than that. And I'll, and I'll say that for a couple, for a couple of reasons. Um, the, the first one is that Barak ends up making it into what's called the Hall of Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11. So Hebrews chapter 11, you got all these great people, you know, Moses and Abraham, and then it kind of, and he's named He's named right there uh, in, in Barak. So he's, he's sort of like honored along the way. And the second reason why I mentioned 
I don't think it's necessarily negative. It's because she's leading Israel at the time. She's the prophet. She's the judge. She's, she's like the, the mayor of the town settling these disputes and settling kind of these issues. I think he does this not out of like fear and terror or even disobedience over the army that's in front of him. After all, he's going to go. We don't see any hesitation after this. We see Barak go fight an invincible army with what little troops he has between the two tribes that offer troops up. We see him as a courageous person. I think that's what's going on. Is he's like drafting his team and he wants the best team available. And he's going, I don't just need my little Debbie alongside. <laughs> Deborah, you're a leader of these people. And I'm just trying to put together the best possible team that I can. And Deborah, you are a part of that. I also think it kind of says something about us to automatically assume that Deborah, probably because she's a woman, can't be a part of the best possible team drafted. Our go-to is like, well, she's got to be terrible, right? And it's like, mm, maybe we just hold the mirror up to ourselves just for a minute on that one. So what we have here is, uh, is, is Barak saying, hey, listen, I just want the best possible team. And also, I want everybody I can to go down into this valley and, uh, and do some damage among these troops that are coming at me here. Okay, so what we have next is Deborah just matter-of-factly saying, sure, I'll go. Yeah, you're asking for help? Of course I'm going to go. Certainly, I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. Now, he doesn't object to this. He's not like, oh, no, I'm going to lose it. He's like, all right, that's fine. The honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver, sister, remember that enemy, enemy guy, into the hands of a woman. Hang on to that one, too. Hands of a woman. It's not necessarily going to be her. She's just, as a prophet, speaking on behalf of God, saying it, it's going to be a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Okay, well, hang on here. Uh, there's like a whole side point I don't think we have time to get into, but I'm just going to like throw it out anyway, is that he says, he says like, I want you to come with me. And she points out like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out, but I want you to know that the honor is going to go to somebody else. Uh, there's like a whole side point about how God is going to do what God is going to do, whether you jump on board right away or not. And I just kind of love that. Like, if it is God's timing, you can't stop it. And if it isn't God's timing, you can't force it. The only thing that's involved is whether or not you get to be a part of the awesome thing that God is doing. And there's like this whole thing that I could like land it here today and go like, guys, God is going to do some awesome things. And I just recommend after having seen him do these awesome things so many times, like jump on board early. It's so much more fun that way, right? Volunteer, serve, get in a group, be a part of what God is doing. Get involved early. It's just, it's so much more fun that way. But anyway, it's a whole part that we're not going to get into. Then, there, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. And he's got these 10,000 men that went up under his command. And Deborah also went with him, right? We got that so far. And then the author takes this weird tangent and just hang with the story because it's just, it takes these weird turns. Um, the author's like, hey, as a side note, there's also uh, Hebor the Kenite. 
and he left the other Kenites. And you're like, who are the Kenites now? Like, there's so many names to keep track of here. And it's like, oh, by, by the way, this tribe, that's not really related to the story at all. They all kind of had a falling out. And like one group went this way and another group went this way because they fought about stuff. It's not really relevant to the story. And you're like, how is this relevant to the story? Heber the Kenite, by the way, um, left the other ones and he, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law. And, you know, he pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanim near Kadesh cool story, bro. Like, where, where does that come from? I don't think there's wasted ink in the story that God is telling. But we're going to pause that one. Then Deborah said to Barak, you're like, tell me more. Like, what was the thing? And the author's like, no, you're going to get to it later. Then Deborah said to Barak, go. This is the Lord. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. I'm like, I'm still outmatched here. I'm still bringing swords and clubs to a tank fight. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down the mountain. He's like, okay, this is, this is the charge part. This is the attack part. With his 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera, hold up, got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Do you feel like we're missing part of the story here? Like, he got out of his tank, and he just starts running. What sense does that make? And we don't really get it in this part of the story. Because you're just like, yeah, action, fighting scene. They're like all lining up and like running at each other, Avengers style. It's going to be sweet. And the, the storyteller kind of keeps us, keeps us focused on that. And then we see Cicero like take off on foot, and there's going to be this chase. And we're going to come back to that. Because Hebor, the Kenite, remember, he's making an appearance again. But it's like, why did he get out of his tank? In a word, mud. Like, like mud happened. Big picture, medium picture. Um, Judges chapter 4, the story of Deborah and Barak is told. Judges chapter 5 Debbie sings this song. She writes this this, this beautiful war poetry. And to her, it was probably set to music. She sings it, and she takes the events of Judges 4 and puts them to music and really just lays it at God's feet and says, oh, wow, you did this incredible thing. And we find out in Judges 5, verse 21, it rained like a big storm in the desert during the dry season, the reason why the guys had to flee on foot is because God miraculously provided this monsoon in the desert in the dry season, and all of those heavy iron tanks got stuck. And the thing that was to their great advantage, immediately in a heartbeat, became a disadvantage. And if we're landing it there, I would make the Christ connection and to say, and when death, the great advantage of evil, was thrust upon Jesus Christ, he turned it into his own advantage and death's own disadvantage by where, oh, death is your victory, where, oh, death is your sting. Boom, resurrection story. But we've got more judges to do. It's wild. Okay. You remember Hebor, the Kenite? This is so crazy. Okay, Sisera, meanwhile, all right, the general, he's fleeing on foot to the tent of jail. More names, you guys. Let's go. The wife, oh, 
Hebor the Kenite, the wife. Remember the guy who had the falling out with the other Kenites? He's married to Jael. But don't worry, there was an alliance between Jabin and Hazor, the family of Hebor the Kenite. So Jabin and Sisera are like friends with Hebor the Kenite, also his wife Jael. Could you imagine like Sisera is running? Right? He gets off his chariot, they're all chasing after him, and he's like running through the woods, or he's like running through the desert, and then he comes up, and he's like, head over the Kenite. This is amazing. I, what luck running into you, an ally, when I've got 10,000 guys chasing after me. This is like perfect, right? Yeah, that's what he thought. Jael, the, the wife, went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come, my Lord, come, right, come on right into this tent. Don't be afraid. Dun, dun, dun. And so he entered the tent and, and she, she covered him with a blanket. And he goes, I'm thirsty. And all this fighting really makes up, uh, makes up, I'm thirsty. He said, please give me some water. It's natural. Get some water after a day of running and fighting. And she opened a skin of milk. <laughs> I didn't have refrigeration either. So, opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink of warm milk, took the blanket, covered him up. I'm just assuming that she also kind of put the lion's game on in the background, like, like sung him a little lullaby, you know, got him good and tired. And then when he's, and then when he's fast asleep, oh, sorry, before he's fast asleep, stand in the doorway of the tent if somebody comes by and asks you, hey, is anybody in there? Say no. But jail... Remember, Heber's wife with the alliance and all that picked up a tent peg and a hammer and quietly uh, went to him when he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and he died. I don't think we needed that last part. (laughs) And he died, I guess so, of a splitting headache. I mean, you could just... We could go, we could go on, and on and on with the story. And that's like the end. We get like a couple like wrap up of details and then there's peace in the area for like 40 years, half the time of Ehud because it's a downward, a downward spiral. And then in chapter five, we hear Debbie's song. Uh, she sings this incredible, she tells the whole story to music and, and lays it at the feet of God and says, thank you for all of this. What are we supposed to learn from a wild story like this? What am I supposed to tell you this week? First of all, I committed to this story way before I really dug into it. And that was maybe on me, maybe also like the Holy Spirit, like, hey, we've got something here. A, a little point and then, and then a, and a big one, if, if you'll indulge me for a moment. Um, sometimes we read diehard-esque stories like this in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, and we're like, you know what? Is this religion like moving Christians towards violence? And I'd like to offer just the exact opposite. I'd like to suggest to you that you can, in fact, put the hammer down, not in spite of your faith, because of it. Because this story tells the tales of a broken Savior who pointed to Jesus, who who provided the sacrifice once and for all. We know, as followers of Jesus, we know that justice, once and for all, will be served. I know, as a Christian, when somebody drives ahead of me and cuts me off on the highway, maybe brake checks me in front of me just to, like, rub it in, 
I know I don't have to get even with that person because there's a king who will make sure that justice and whatever true and good and right and ultimate justice looks like, Jesus will make sure that justice is served. When somebody wrongs me, I can forgive because I know that there is a savior, that there is a Lord and God who will ultimately accomplish justice. It doesn't have to be in my hands. I would actually argue that apart from faith, I would argue that apart from the Christian faith in in particular, especially atheism and just letting go of God would make us more violent as people because we have no assurance assurance that justice will ultimately be served unless I get in there and I get even. I hope stories like this encourage us to put the hammer down in a nice gentle way because we don't have to get even, because we know that God is good and God is just. But then on the bigger point, Deborah was a good judge. She was a good leader. And she did everything right, I think. Except she could only bring justice for 40 years. She could only bring peace for a generation. And then they went right back. Deliverance went right back to disobedience. Went right back to disaster. And the people were again crying out. We did it again. We got ourselves in a huge mess up to our eyeballs again. And I would love, church, for each one of us to walk out of this place and to have a tool at our disposal to break that cycle. Some of you have been coming to church long enough and you've read the story long enough to know, hey, can I like ask for deliverance every time and every time he's going to show up? Yeah, he will. That's how grace works. You can get yourself up to your eyeballs in debt again and again. And you can cry out to God for deliverance. And he'll give you forgiveness. You can eat too much, drink too much, date too much, spend too much. You can get into it however you choose to get into it on your particular cycle over and over and over again. And he'll show up for you every single time. He'll do that. But the thing is, the consequences of doing what you want, when you want, with whom you want, as long as nobody gets hurt, and somebody always gets hurt, the consequences will follow up with you. He said he would forgive your sin. He didn't tell you that there wouldn't be fallout to that sin. He'll deliver you every single time, but I just want to give you a warning that even though he'll deliver you, you can't get your 20s back. Maybe you can't get your 30s back. He'll offer you that forgiveness over and over and over again, but he can't, he might not give you your first marriage back. You might not get the opportunity to go back in time and to reparent your kids. Break the cycle. Deborah's deliverance leads her to sing a song, God, thank you. 
She gives credit to where credit is due. Don't forget who's doing the heavy lifting in the story. Learn to sing the song like Deborah learns to sing the song. It wasn't Deborah's wisdom. It wasn't Barack's courage. It wasn't JL's, I don't know, tent peg. (laughs) It was the mud that the people were saved by. Don't forget who's doing the heavy lifting in the story, decorating for Christmas right there in the background, delivering the people over and over and over again. I just can't help but imagine how things would be different on this downward cycle of of sadness if the song in chapter 5 came before in chapter 4. If the song was sung first. If the people never chose disobedience, never chose disaster, never needed to be delivered, how much life would be different. And that's what I want for you before you look back and go, I can't get my 20s back, my first marriage back. I can't reparent my kids because I spent so much time eating too much, drinking too much, dating too much, spending too much, doing what I want with whom I want, any time that I wanted. Learn to sing the song first and say, God, it's all yours. Thank you. How do you want me to live? And when I follow after you, maybe I won't exchange this, what I have with you, for just something less. For a a savior called food or a savior called drink or a savior with the name of a person or a savior called spending or consumption, something that's going to rule after us all the time. Maybe I won't chase down other of that stuff because I have you. Church, if there's somebody you need to offer forgiveness to, you can put the hammer down. You don't have, you don't have to find vengeance because you have a good and just God. If there's a cycle that you're stuck in and you're going, I thought last time was the last time, you break the cycle by handing your life over to your Savior who says, I made you, I saved you, I love you. Follow life according to my will and maybe just maybe you won't find yourself in such a place of needing that deliverance yield to him early i want to invite you to stand up and let's uh let's pray to god our savior today uh, jesus you broke into this world to show us what a savior looks like what a better and true savior looks like Jesus, you know that we get it wrong. Jesus, we know that we choose this created world over you, our creator. And you loved us anyway. God, the story of Judges, it it, it shows us again and again and again that the cycle repeats itself. And we are powerless to stop it. May we sing your praises, live our lives for your glory, And Lord, that you would bless us in return. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the new life that you give us. In your name we pray.